Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 24th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Parts of the health service will grind to a halt today, resulting in up to... 30,000 patients having their procedures cancelled as a result of strike action being taken today and tomorrow. Medical lab scientists are on strike over an issue that has been in contention for 20 years. I do believe that the process is there now, that MSA or participants in, the, in that process. I think it's important to, to all sides work with conviction to bring it to a conclusion and I would ask that the Perhaps the strike action could be lifted pending the, the outcome. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin calling on medical lab scientists to allow talks to conclude before they take strike action. The Medical Laboratory Scientists Association have a long-standing concern in relation to the pay and career structure of the medical scientists' grade. They want pay parity between medical scientists and clinical biochemists. That's the issue. But why has it been an issue for 20 years? Health sector management has been engaging with the MLSA regarding these issues under the existing public service agreement. Perhaps so, but there hasn't been a meeting of minds on this, hence uh, the two days strike this week, following last week's one-day strike and ahead of three-day strike next week if there isn't a resolution. Public service agreement group comprised of union and civil service representatives with an independent chair met on May the 11th to consider this matter. They recommended that the matter be immediately referred to the WRC. Well, everyone agreed to go into talks last week. While the MLSA have agreed to engage at the WRC, they have not agreed to lift their strike action which is in breach of of building momentum. And the government continues today to call for talks to continue under the public service agreement building momentum. I would appreciate and would ask again that the strike action will be lifted. That's the Taoiseach speaking last week. Yesterday in Cork, the Taoiseach said ahead of today's action that the full labour relations machinery of the state has to be used to bring a resolution to this issue. He said we can give a timeline to the conclusion of the work of such agencies. The Labour Court could play a role in resolving this if it is fully utilised, he said. Let's speak to Kevin O'Boyle, who's uh, the chair of uh, the MLSA, the Medical Laboratory Scientists Association, and based at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, just uh, so that we understand what's going on, the Taoiseach asked you to engage uh, uh, with the HSE on this, uh, to enter into talks, to return to talks, but there are no talks planned this week, are there? 
No, it's it's been very disappointing, uh, Michael. So we took our first day of industrial action on Wednesday last week, um, and and we fully expected the HSE and Department of Health to engage with us. After that, um, we totally regret the disruption that was caused last week, and and is now now being caused again this week. But we we haven't received any. Um, significant engagements from the Department of Health or HSE um, to, to put an end to this. Uh, medical scientists don't want to be doing this. Um, we, re- we really want to be in work serving the patients. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's a terrible situation at the moment, Michael. And, um, you know, we, we would call on, I, I would join Michal Martin in, in calling on the Department of Health and HSE to engage with us. Why are we where we are uh, given that this was uh, agreed in 2001, wasn't it? Uh, and there's a, a, an issue of a, a pay differentia- differentiation of 8% between you and the clinical biochemists uh, that the Taoiseach uh, was talking about. That's correct, Michael, yeah. So the, the HSE and Department of Health accepted um, the findings of an expert group report into the profession 20 years ago. Um, the report was... You know, it was it was very forward thinking in, in that it envisioned the increasingly scientific role um, of of healthcare in this country, um, and laboratory medicine is central to that. Um, and we're seeing that very much um, during this industrial action. Um, that every part of the patient journey requires input from laboratory medicine, whether that's attending primary care at your GP or presenting to the A and E department. Um, you know, admission, diagnosis, treatment, monitoring, discharge, mm. um, ev- everything requires laboratory medicine um, to function at its at its best. Uh, you know, and when order. you're not working today, people are having their appointments cancelled uh, and procedures cancelled. Uh, and that is absolutely regrettable. And as, as mm. I say, we, mm. we don't want to be doing this. No, but it shows the importance of, of your work, uh, that uh, the system can't work without uh, the medical scientists. That's correct, Michael. Yeah, and you know the system is the system is not working the way it should be to start with. And um, so, because of the, I suppose, lack of investment and lack of respect for our profession, our our graduates are not coming into the profession. Um, in 2017, the MLSA wrote to the Public Service Pay Commission, um, warning of a worsening recruitment and retention crisis. Um, in the laboratory sector, um, and, and that has come to fruition because at the moment, up to 20% of medical scientist positions are vacant across the country. And that just really shows, you know, how, how bad things are within the sector, that our brilliant young graduates are not coming into the profession and they're looking elsewhere for their careers. Right. Uh, have you uh, a, a figure on how much it would cost to fix this? Um, that figure of 8%, uh, I mean, if you spread that across your 2,100 members, uh, what would the bill be for the government? Um, so, I mean, the bill for the government would be what it should have been 20 years ago um, when the report came out and was accepted by the HSE. Um, the medical scientists in this country have waited 20 years and for what they were promised. And, you know, I would ask your listeners to consider if, if your boss did a job evaluation and said you were due a pay cut, or uh, sorry, a, a pay raise, how long, how long would you wait for them to actually give that to you? We've waited 20 years and still they are ignoring us on this issue. 
Okay, um, there, there isn't a, a figure as such, a specific uh, amount uh, that the government uh, would uh, face if uh, there was an agreement at that 8%, uh, shoring up that difference between you and the clinical biochemists. But yeah, you were in talks uh, in the WRC last week, weren't you? So uh, we've, we've been talking about this for the last uh, two, over two years now. Um, the, the, the crisis in recruitment and retention caused us to um, reactivate our claim in January 2020. Um, we have been at the Workplace Relations Commission. Um, we have been at, as, as Michal Martin referenced there, we've been at the Public Service Agreement Group. Um, we've been at sectoral bargaining negotiations. We've been chasing down every industrial relations avenue open to us to try and get this resolved. And our pleas are falling on deaf ears. Um, and, and that has caused a lot of frustration amongst our membership nationwide. Okay. Um, was it complete stalemate when you sat down to talk last week? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, met with shrugs of the shoulders and, you know, um, just, just, just no movement from the employer side. Okay, um, which, which is very disappointing. Because we heard the Taoiseach tell us that the HSE was engaging with you, uh, but that meant they met with you, but they didn't really have much to say, and they weren't uh, too inclined to be listening to your claims. I mean, all all the MLSA are looking for here is some kind of meaningful offer um, from the Department of Health and the HSE, and that has not been forthcoming at all in these in these negotiations. All right. The Taoiseach has been talking about how he and government recognise the significant role that you have in terms of delivering health services in this country. But you also heard the Taoiseach say there that he believes that you're in breach of the public service agreement, building momentum. How do you respond to that? Um, well, I suppose I would say that this is this is the only option that we've been left with. Um, as, I, as I've just said, we, we, we've utilised every industrial relations mechanism that, that hmm. um, uh, the Taoiseach mentioned. Um, but when, when nobody is listening, um, we, we've been forced into this, this terrible situation that we're in now. Um, and our membership are, are very, very strongly in favour and committed to this process. Um, so at our uh, AGM last year, 98% voted for this industrial action. And that's to continue the industrial action until they give us what they said we deserve, what they recognise we deserve, um, and, and which they're, they're refusing to give us. Right, uh, and I don't imagine for a, a moment that anybody in uh, the health services uh, contemplates industrial action very lightly. It's a, a big decision to take. Strike action uh, is practically unheard of, uh, and certainly unheard of uh, as far as uh, your organisation is uh, concerned. Uh, I read in the papers uh, this morning that this is the second strike that you've taken in 60 years uh, since the formation of uh, the MLSA. Uh, so it's uh, an unusual thing, but uh, there's obviously very strong feelings about this. There was a one-day strike last week, two days this week. If there's no resolution, three days next week. What happens after that, or have you got to that point yet? I think, um, you know, we're, we're taking it one day at a time. Um, there's there's a real hope within the profession um, that our, our pleas will be listened to, um, that, that, you know, there is an easy fix for this. Um, it's to give us what you promised us 20 years ago. Um, and we don't want both sides getting more entrenched in this as time goes on. 
So what, what we're calling for is, you know, public support, political support, and um, if any, anything that can help us to have our voices heard. Um, it's, it's, it's not something that we can ignore anymore because mm. um, our, our, our current, you know, the, the, the class that will be graduating this year, they, they see the rest of us, we're exhausted, we're trying to keep a three six five twenty four seven service going with with a twenty percent um, deficit of staff, um, and our young graduates are turning away from the profession. They're looking to the pharmaceutical industry, which is thriving in this country, um, and and who are only too happy to snap up the wonderful graduates we produce every year, um, and and then. Those graduates don't come into the profession. That makes our recruitment and retention crisis worse. It puts more pressure on the staff that are remaining. And it really is, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a terrible snowball effect that's happening at the moment. And it, it really is a very urgent situation. Okay. At the same time, Kevin, I, I'm sure you'll agree there's going to be a lot of upset and annoyance of the consequence of the action today because people well, are well, having procedures cancelled. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to be upset with you. They may be. They may be upset with the HSE or, or the government or all three of you, but they certainly will be upset with the situation and concerned about the situation, which uh, at best is slowing the system down. Uh, I take it there's no prospect of you grinding the system to a halt and going on full outstrike, all outstrike. Well, no, that I mean, that's that's not possible for the voluntary medicine. So, you know, the voluntary medicine is vital for everything that happens in a hospital. Um, if you don't have a lab in a hospital, you can't have a single patient in that hospital because we are absolutely vital to every aspect of, of patient care. So we have worked very hard with the HSE to um, put in place emergency contingency cover in all sections of the lab. We've been working with the clinicians to make sure that the most vulnerable patients are looked after during these days of strike. Um, and really, we can't escalate any more than we are because it would just be dangerous to patients. More than three days in a week, which is what you've planned for next week. Yeah, it's um, it's it's our hope that, that we wouldn't have to do that. But as I say, our members are, are very committed um, to this process and it's going to take intervention from, from the, the employer side to fix this. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment, Kevin. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today. Could I just finish there, Michael, of by course. just thanking all the um, all our, our colleagues um, here in the hospital in Our Lady of Lourdes and all around the country for their support in this. Um, and, you know, that they, they know what we do within the hospital and they recognise why we're doing this. So I just wanted to thank them. They have been great. Okay. All right, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. That's Kevin O'Boyle, who's uh, the chair of the MLSA. That's the Medical Laboratory Scientists Association, which are now on uh, the first of two days strike action this week. If there's not a resolution, as you've been hearing, this will continue with a three day strike next week uh, and possibly. Uh, every week after that uh, until it is resolved. Uh, That seems to be the position uh, of uh, the association at this stage. Kevin is based in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's a, a terrible turn of phrase, uh, but uh, one uh, that spells out the reality of life for so many people in this country at the moment who have to choose whether to eat or heat their homes. Uh, and if you're finding it hard to make ends meet and 
uh, you're deciding whether you'll eat or heat your home, you may be interested to know that there are billionaires in this world uh, and they're making money out of uh, the food industry and the energy industry. And it's estimated that they increase their fortunes by $1 billion every two days. Puts things in perspective to some degree, as Oxfam usually does when the World Economic Forum meets in Davos. It's meeting uh, today, as it was yesterday, and Oxfam's report, Profiting from Pain, probably tells its own story in uh, the title. Let's speak uh, to Jim Clarkin, who's uh, the CEO of Oxfam Ireland. And uh, a very good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, some of uh, the world's richest people, uh, the elite and famous, are, are meeting in Davos, and you've uh, been comparing their experience of life on this planet uh, to the experience that many other people will never experience. Absolutely, Michael. Good morning and thanks very much for, for having me on. Yeah, I mean, the, the World Economic Forum gives us an opportunity to, to cast a spotlight on just this <coughs> extraordinary exponential growth of the wealth of some people, uh, a very small minority of people, whilst the rest of the world is, has been suffering and continues to suffer and it's getting worse for a lot of people. And that, that uh, very grim uh, comparator you make, I think, is really powerful, eat or heat. And that is really the decision that some people are having to make. And ironically, the, you know, and we, we, we look at this broadly, but if you look specifically at energy, food and pharma, there, there are three areas that where, where people have made extraordinarily uh, additional gains of wealth during this period. And they're the, they're the areas where, where the population itself has, has been most impacted on, you know, the global food prices have transformed have gone up dramatically over the last while uh, and we know what the we know what the energy costs are going but those companies are making more money than ever and the people who own them are making more money than ever uh, and it's it, you know it's just a it's an ongoing problem uh, that you know that we need uh, world leaders to to confront and say look this isn't acceptable we need to look you know it, nobody has any problem with people making profit or making money or becoming wealthy but when it gets to this level of extreme extremity where you know we we have a food crisis in east africa which is emerging now where there are 23 million people uh, on the brink of starvation and we we don't use this language that often i mean we there is the potential for a famine in somalia which could emerge in the next uh, during the summer where 350,000 350,000 children uh, could die of starvation and this this is not something that you know this is exceptional and extraordinary and it is being driven because of this extremities in, in wealth and poverty and uh, and those, you know, the resources not being there to support people who need it. So mm. it's, it's, a, it's a global problem and it's one that we need to confront. Money makes money, does it? Uh, or is that uh, the reason why the rich are getting richer? Because it's clear from what I've seen of your report that the rich have got a whole lot richer. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, 573 new billionaires during the pandemic. Um, where, and if you juxtapose that against 263 million people will go into extreme poverty. Now, the, the rates of extreme poverty, and that's a very specific bar, had been decreasing for the previous 20 years. But since the pandemic, uh, that has changed. And it has changed for all these kinds of reasons. COVID, a part of it. Uh, the impact on on climate change in poor parts of the world, 
and this this inability for countries to be able to pay for social protection, to be able to to deliver services for people because this this wealth is being held by small numbers of people. They're not being taxed properly. And as a result, the you know the, 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 this extraordinary inequality is continuing to grow, and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't serve anybody. I mean, when you have you know people you know people with this level of wealth, you know the wealth just sits there. You know they never they can never spend it in in a, in a hundred lifetimes. So it, it makes no sense for it to be continue to be accumulated by a small group of people when it could be put to good use for everybody's benefit. Mm. Uh, it's not what they do, though, is it? Uh, I mean, they don't just have it sitting in bank accounts. No, they, they have it invested in shares and they have it invested in yachts and they have it invested in properties and all the rest of it. Um, and but it is it's 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 you know there's there's there is money that has been accumulated and remember what it's been accumulated on it's mm. been accumulated in this instance on food. So everything we all have to have and <laughs> we all need and food the, the the price of food are spiking across the world and food companies are becoming wealthier than ever and the owners of food companies are becoming wealthier than ever and that's not right. You know, it's it's fine for them to make profit, but not to make this extraordinary excess profit when people are struggling to eat, or to make excess profit on energy and heating when people are struggling to heat their homes. Uh, nobody has an issue with companies and individuals, you know, becoming wealthier or making profit. But it's just that when it when it leads to a situation where people are making those dreadful decisions, like you described, eat or heat, then yeah. it's not acceptable, and there's something that can be done about it. So we're talking about looking at. Uh, excess profit taxes and it isn't just Oxfam it's the IMF it's the World Bank and others are, are suggesting that this should be the case uh, and then you're looking at some form of wealth tax for those uber wealthy people and a modest tax 2% could actually make a massive difference to exchequers around the world Right um, five of the largest energy companies are making $2,600 profit every second uh, and it's estimated, uh, on the other hand, uh, that a, a million people will go into extreme poverty every 33 hours. Yeah. And as I say, you know, the, the numbers are staggering and they're very hard for people to get their heads around. But, you know, a quarter of a billion people pushed into extreme poverty. So that's poverty where, you know, you're surviving day by day and only just and, and on the brink of, of calamity. Um, when when those companies can make that, it just it's just not right, and I think everybody knows this. And 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 sometimes people shrug, you know, I mean, governments and others shrug their shoulders, but we we have solutions to this. There are simple solutions, and you know, the World Economic Forum is a is a moment when we can cast a spotlight on that. Uh, the, these people fly in with their jets into into this lovely place in Davos, and they have a great chat about you know so many things, and it's an important moment. But it's an important moment for. The rest of the world then to realise actually hold on a sec now we we can we can do something about this and this isn't this isn't to diminish the the importance of entrepreneurial work or business or you know or energy companies or anything like that but there is a, there is a a problem when extreme profit and extreme wealth is driven and from a place that impacts poorest people and impacts ordinary people impacts all of us. Um, and and doesn't doesn't add value to the global economy or to the global society. Okay, and when we talk about eat or heat uh, in Irish context, um, there's a, a lot of people who are finding it very difficult to, to make ends meet. There's a lot of concern about the increase in the cost of living uh, and how high inflation may soar. Uh, what's the situation in terms of wealth in, in this country? We've quite a number of billionaires, don't we? We do. We have we have nine billionaires, uh, and they their their wealth has increased 
by uh, 15 billion over this period. So that's a lot of additional, that's on top of their existing wealth. Um, so bringing them to about 51 billion between them, just those nine, nine individuals. Um, and and yet again, that's just an accumulation of wealth by a small number of people. And in the meantime, we have 691,000 people in Ireland, over 200,000 of which are children, are experiencing deprivation, who are living in some form of poverty. Mm. And, and again, in the 21st century, that's completely unnecessary. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of money to go around. There's plenty of resource to go around. There's plenty of food and energy to go around. But it's just when it's being hoarded by a small group of people because the structures that are in place currently uh, facilitate that, then we have to look at those systems. They're, they're, they're just not working for everybody. So there's, we have to make decisions to make that change. To, right. uh, to, yeah. And you're saying you could help those uh, who are in this very worrying situation and are very concerned about what's coming down the line by redistributing this wealth and there's a lot of it, 51 billion euro. You're saying that, and that's just the billionaires, but you're saying that millionaires should be paying a wealth tax if they own more than 4 million, that there should be a 1.5% tax on them and that would raise 4 billion. That would make a massive difference. Huge, a huge difference. If you think about what, what that could be done in terms of supporting social protection, supporting, you know, making sure there's a floor, making sure that our health systems are, are resourced and our education systems are resourced properly, making sure there's, uh, you know, resource for, for special needs, uh, people with special needs and people with disabilities, uh, older people and so on. So there's a, there's a lot of places where that money could make a transformative difference to the lives of, of normal people, uh, yet it's being, it's being held by these extremely wealthy people and doesn't really do much for them either. They sit on it, you know what I mean? It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't really transform their lives whether they get it whether they have you know 10 billion or 15 billion it doesn't make that much of a difference but the, the difference it could make if we can find it it can find its way back into society is transformative okay well one billion every two days uh, for the food and energy sector uh, it's a very interesting and stark comparison thank you indeed for joining us on the program uh, this morning jim clarkin is uh, the ceo of oxfam ireland Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well, thanks uh, to uh, Deirdre, who's been WhatsApping us uh, this morning. She says uh, that uh, this strike is going to cause a lot of problems. It needs uh, to be settled urgently. Uh, and uh, if uh, they were promised an 8% increase 20 years ago, surely it's a valid claim. doesn't seem to be fair on the patients who are being affected as a result of this dispute. And she's calling for some intervention and resolution on it. Thank you indeed. It's a, a big day today uh, in many ways uh, because of uh, the arrival in this country of Richard Neal and that US congressional delegation. They'll be, or Mr Neal will be addressing uh, the Shannon uh, later on today and uh, I'm sure there'll be very strong messages uh, for the British government uh, through that meeting. Uh, we might take a, a little listen now to what uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte had to say at a, a press uh, conference yesterday. Uh, he was in Ireland uh, to meet with uh, the Taoiseach and talk uh, about a, a number of issues, including the Ukraine-British uh, unilateral action and, uh, indeed, the Good Friday Agreement, for that matter. Fully agree, uh, and add to that, maybe, what we are talking about. And, of course, you know this, uh, but I always remember my colleagues in the European Union. In the first place, um, I'm, I still get emotional when I think about what happened uh, Good Friday in 1998, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. It was an historic moment. And this is all about preserving uh, 
that Good Friday Agreement. Secondly, it is about uh, preventing a hard border on the island of Ireland. And it is safeguarding the uh, integrity of the EU single market. So we are talking about big stuff here. Uh, this is not just an international treaty, uh, but this is a very big uh, thing which uh, we are uh, talking about. And I think the EU has shown maximum flexibility. Uh, I, will, I, I fully supported what uh, Maro Shevkovic has been doing so far, uh, the relevant uh, commissioner. I think we all have. He had the full backing of the 27, uh, including the Netherlands, and we will uh, keep on working with him and his team to make sure that we somehow find a way out of this. But if it is not possible, then we also have to take uh, our uh, next steps and think about those. I, I don't want now to, to um, guesstimate about what they could be, uh, because I don't think that is helpful. But uh, I think Boris Johnson, UK, know very well what then the next steps could be. And, and let's hope we don't come to that. Right, uh, that's uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte who was explaining and articulating uh, the Netherlands on quivering uh, support uh, for the Good Friday Agreement and uh, indeed uh, very much uh, opposed to the idea that uh, the British would uh, take unilateral action, uh, which of course is what uh, we've been hearing. Uh, the Taoiseach also at that press conference was talking about this support that we're getting from the Netherlands, but not just the Netherlands, from all European countries. The record is very clear that the European Union has demonstrated uh, that united solidarity um, towards Ireland and in relation to, 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 to the Brexit situation, situation, but in a context where the European Union wants harmonious relationships with the United Kingdom. I mean, from the geopolitical perspective, I've said this consistently, even, even during the Brexit referendum, that it makes sense that the uh, European Union, UK are in alignment on the, on, the, on the big geopolitical issues with the United States and with democracies in general. Therefore, there's an urgent need then to resolve issues like the protocol. Um, and what I, what's very clear from our, our partners in Europe is, I think Mark articulated it there succinctly, when, you, when people do treaties, and when, this is about behaviour, how we behave towards each other. If we sign agreements, there's an understanding that you adhere to the agreements. Um, notwithstanding that, Europe has shown goodwill in working with the United Kingdom on the operation of the protocol. Uh, to make it as efficient and as effective as possible. Uh, and I, as I said just earlier to, to, to Mark, what's striking from the trade representatives in the north and business representatives in the, in the north is the degree to which uh, the protocol works for many sectors, manufacturing, dairy, meat, and so forth. Uh, and that's something that can, cannot be discarded. Uh, unilateralism simply does not work. It has never worked in the context of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and I had a very good discussion with President von der Leyen during the week, uh, who's in touch with all of our colleagues uh, on the EU Council. Uh, and it's very, very clear that everything is on the table uh, in terms of any responses to what might happen. Uh, the UK government has declared an intention to do something. It hasn't happened yet. So we will be calibrated and the European Union will uh, you know, take this step by step uh, and do things in a sensible way, always mindful that we believe there's a way to resolve this and it's at the negotiations. Right, that's the Taoiseach. Clear messages uh, from uh, the Dutch Prime Minister, clear messages uh, from Europe to the British government. Uh, whether it's a game or a f chicken or not, God knows. Uh, but uh, the British are being told 
uh, that they won't come out of this best. Indeed, uh, they've been told uh, a couple of times in the last week that there won't be a trade deal with the United States. It's quite possibly what the Shannon will be told by that congressional delegation uh, when it addresses the Oireachtas later this evening. Uh, somebody in touch with us, Brendan, saying uh, it's great to see a supermarket uh, offering a discount uh, to customers on a Tuesday. Uh, because that'll be a bonus for people who are struggling. John Navin says, what is the difference between invasion and liberation? The answer, he says, it depends on who's saying it and that the D-Day operation was the invasion. In fact, it was an operation to liberate Europe from Nazi occupation when Russia enters Ukraine to liberate Russian-speaking people and to denazify the country. It's called an invasion. I'm not sure, John, uh, where you're getting your news these days, uh, but I don't think it's uh, from usual sources and I think that's probably one thing that we could uh, agree on. Uh, we were talking about Davos and the World Economic Forum with Jim Clarkin of Oxfam uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, addressed the World Economic Forum yesterday. This war of Russia against Ukraine convinces everyone that support to the country under attack is the more valuable the sooner it is provided. Weapons, funding, political support and sanctions against Russia. If we would have received them by 100% of our needs at once, back in February, the result would be tens of thousands of lives saved. This is why Ukraine needs all the weapons that we ask, not just the ones that we've been provided. That is why Ukraine needs funding. That's at least 5 billion US dollars per month. And all the funds that we need for rebuilding our country. This is why we have established a fund for rebuilding Ukraine called United 24. And we call upon everyone to join this. That's uh, Vladimir Zelensky speaking in Davos by video link yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're waiting for eye treatment, you could be waiting for some time. Indeed, in Louth and Mead, 72% of people aged over 18 are waiting a year or longer before they're seen. Nationally, there's almost 21,000 people who are waiting to see a community ophthalmology appointment. Uh, we're joined by Garvin Mulligan, who's the chair of FODO Ireland which uh, represents community optometrists. Uh, very good morning to you Garvin and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that's a, a long time to wait and we're seeing significant increases in the number of people who are, are waiting for treatment. Morning Michael. Yes it's, it is a very long time to wait and the problem is is that this could be sorted very easily by moving a lot of those patients who are waiting into community of optometrists who could clear away a lot of the backlog and, and allow the ophthalmologist to see the necessary patients. So there's a, there's a waiting list there, but it can be solved very, very simply. Okay. Uh, and uh, the type of treatment that we're talking about, uh, what is the consequence of leaving it for longer than a year before people are seeing? Well, depending, depending on what it is, but if you're looking at something like uh, macular degeneration and it's, it's wet macular degeneration, I mean, you need to see these people within days or weeks. Seeing them after um, two weeks is really too late 
So you have to see them at an early stage. And the whole the whole system should should work more like a sieve system, where the the optometrist in the community sees the patient, and then they refer the person to the ophthalmologist, who who can be then seen by the specialist. At the moment, the specialist is seeing all all the patients, which is is really is a good use of their time. I mean, we have it. They did a they did a, um, a program over in Sligo where the optometrist worked with the ophthalmologist and they did the pre-assessments for the cataracts and post-assessments. So that saved two appointments with the ophthalmologist and they cleared away most of the backlog. It's a very simple process. And the same in, same in children's eye care, which is, mm. which is a critical stage. Because children's eye care, if they're not seen, the eye really develops its vision, really probably the age of about eight or ten. And if that child is waiting a year, if the, the chance of their vision being improved or getting to a good a good level for later in life is is disimproving all the time. So it's a key that, that they should be seen at a very early stage. And most of them then other the ones from age onwards should be sent back into the community optometrist. So therefore we can see them and if there is a problem we can refer them back in. But so there is a very simple solution to the problem. Mm. I've been dealing with the HSE for about eight years with meetings after meetings and they agree the solution is there but it still hasn't happened. Okay, but Sligo is unique. Uh, it's not uh, unusual to see waiting times like those in Louth and Mead. Uh, there's plenty of uh, parts of uh, the country that have equally high waiting times, isn't there? Yes, no, Sligo is, is just unique, but it just shows by working together how you can bring down the waiting time. I mean, if you look down to Cork, the waiting time is 73% also, with Cork and Kerry. I mean, Galway, I think it's about 80% is, are waiting over a year. So it really is also a post, postcode lottery. Hmm. Where you're living, depending on how. But well, I come back to the whole time. It's not. It's not because of lack of um, consultants, or it's just systems that the HSE have aren't working. The staff in the ophthalmology department, the nurses, the consultants are working very hard, but they're being overloaded unnecessarily. They're seeing patients that are not necessary to be seen in a hospital setting. Okay, and this has been raised many times over in the doll, has it not? It has. It has been raised. The Minister for Health says, yes, we're going, to, we're going to sort this out. We're going to deal with it. But as I said, I've been having meetings about um, the under eight, the overage children for about eight years of the HSE, and they keep saying it's going to be sorted. The Minister last year said it was going to be sorted. This year, we still I, I hold my breath on that until it is. Until I see the legislation coming in through, or say the director from the HSE saying, this is what we're going to do. Mm. Uh, I take it uh, there's concern then uh, about uh, the long term for people's sight. Uh, 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 I think uh, things like glaucoma, uh, if uh, they go unattended, can result in sight loss. Oh, it can. I mean, if you miss that critical period, especially with glaucoma, any loss of vision that you have is permanent. You can't get it back. And again, that's the whole point is they need to be seen at an early stage for the initial consultation and initial intervention with macular degeneration, a number of diseases, mm. and those diseases, early diagnosis, early treatment, long-time prognosis is much, much greater. Mm. Late diagnosis or late treatment prognosis is very, very poor. And then you pay for the other side because that person is, has a disability because they could go blind. Mm. So it, it, that's, that is the problem. We're not thinking 
and it, it can be sorted very simply. Well, it seems very extreme uh, if it is unnecessary that somebody could go blind or go blind in one eye for that matter. Uh, it, it seems uh, very hard to understand uh, as well delays in things like cataract treatments. We hear of busloads of people going north to be treated uh, uh, because of uh, the cross-border scheme and that sort of thing. Do the waiting lists need to be uh, as long as they are here? Because it's a very simple procedure, isn't it? And one that is life-changing. It's the most common procedure carried out in the Western world is cataract operation. Of any operation anywhere in the world, in the Western world. So it's a very simple procedure. Um, it, and again, it's short-sighted because, as you see, the buses go up to Belfast. They have to go for two visits and the person pays up front, and then they claim it back from the HSE, which costs the HSE more in the long run. They could, there's a number of um, ophthalmologists, again, in, in Ireland, who they could ask to get privately to do them, to clear away that, that, that waiting list very quickly. It would cost them less money as well. Right. They, they allow this system to develop, which puts the patient in convenience, because they have to go up to Belfast twice, and if there's a problem, then they have to go back up again. I'm not saying that very rarely there is a problem, but again, it's short-termism. They don't want to rather than spend the money now and clear away the waiting list. Um, and they've done that in Waterford, where they've used the, the um, private ophthalmologist to clear away a lot of their cataract waiting lists. So it is being done in certain in certain areas of the country, and it's it's not being done in other areas of the country. And then people are waiting. And again, cataract operation is is, is really once once you get it, you have a, if your cataract gets too mm. too as I say mature or dense, you know. The, it's the difference once you get your cataract operation. Everything becomes so bright, and it's, it's a real life changer for people. Mm, no, people talk about it uh, as if it's a, a miracle, and it is a, 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 medica- yeah. a medical mir- miracle, really, and, isn't it? And, and it's a day case, mm. and you're in mm. and out the same day. It's local anaesthetic. It's not a general anaesthetic, you know. So it's, it's it is a very 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 quick procedure, and you know, again, it's easy to easy again. There is easy solutions to clear the backlogs there. Mm. Uh, and generally something uh, that older people would suffer from, but uh, the waiting times uh, is something that is affecting young and old. Uh, what, what, what way is it uh, affecting children? Well, children is really when, if they're, if they're not being screened correctly, or if they have, a, if they have just say, as um, people call it, a lazy eye or a weakness in the eye. If that child is not caught, if they catch them at four or five, the chances are, I'll take the example of my own son, before he was going to school, I said, I better just test, test him to make sure that there's nothing wrong with his eyes. And lo and behold, he had a lazy eye. No, it wouldn't have detected, no squint. So I, again, he was, I put him into the, into the scheme and he was seen and his eye is now perfect and he's, his, his vision is perfect. But if he hadn't been seen and he was waiting to about seven or eight, his vision would be poor for the rest of his life no matter what treatment he was getting. Mm. And that's the key. So it's catching them early. So if a child is waiting for that year, it really is critical a critical period. And this is what we're saying, is that all the over eights should be seen in the community optometrist so that this, the, all the people who are necessarily seen quickly and urgently can be seen by the um, ophthalmologist in the hospital setting. Mm. And this is just a matter of utilising the correct the professions, the correct people with the correct um, qualifications for, for, for different areas. Okay, um, it's a long time and a lot of uh, concern as time goes on, uh, undoubtedly, and particularly as children's eyes are, are, are developing, as you say, Garvin, for that matter. Yeah, okay. it is. It, it, it really is. 
All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. That's Garvin Mulligan, the chair of Fado Ireland uh, Community Optometrists. Uh, we'd uh, Mairead Indrahada on the phone to us uh, this morning. Thanks for your call, Mairead. Mairead says she doesn't begrudge anyone their wealth and fair play to them for working hard and making money. It seems, though, that the rich are getting richer and those at the bottom of the pile are getting poorer. Who is to blame for this poverty? Hard to think that there are children who are hungry today when there are bins outside many houses filled with wasted food. Sometimes we don't appreciate what we have. That's a very good point, uh, I think, Mairead. Uh, something I know that uh, a lot of us hate to do is waste food, uh, but I think you're right uh, based on... Uh, statistics uh, that we read about the amount of food that it is wasted and it seems shameful when there's children going to bed hungry. Thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The Garda Representative uh, Association are meeting in Westport uh, this week where they'll hear from uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. Indeed, the Minister will hear from rank-and-file Gardaí about many of uh, the issues that uh, they have problems with. And there is a very long list of issues, not just pay and conditions, but like every other organisation in the country, they will be looking for significant pay increases in line with uh, the rate of inflation. But it's uh, the other Uh, problems uh, that they have, uh, the terms and conditions of employment and uh, indeed the tools to do the job, which I think uh, will be uh, at the top of their agenda when they bring these uh, to the Minister. We're joined by Brendan O'Connor, who's uh, the Vice President of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. And it seems as though morale in the force is very low at this stage. Uh, Brendan, uh, would it be right to describe it as a deflated force? Yes, I would say it's ordered um, a combination of factors I think that are affecting morale and the, the collective of that is that people are just feeling, uh, I suppose, a bit unsupported and a bit unsure of where the organisation is going and uh, certainly that there's, there's issues to be addressed there to, to, to give members a bit of reassurance and a bit of direction and comfort in, in performing their roles. Right, uh, and uh, too few officers, uh, hard to, to recruit young officers, uh, hard to get them trained. Uh, they're training, you were saying yesterday, alongside other officers who have not been trained, uh, so uh, not much to learn there, and not much in the way of incentive for older officers to remain in the force. Yeah, we see we see a combination of factors that uh, I suppose outline our agenda there, and as we say, just making life in the guard not not an attractive proposition and uh, people are finding a lot of the changes that are brought in aren't for the better and we're seeing senior people who have reached the, the, the once they reach the time that they can retire a lot of people are choosing to leave the organization then we have junior people who are leaving in resignations which is a very recent phenomenon not it's not something we would have seen in the guards down the years it was always considered um, a good career a job for life good safe job with career prospects and a pension but it would seem that a considerable number of our younger members are saying no not for me so that's very alarming for us and very alarming for the communities that uh, rely on our presence to reassure them and deal with stuff like anti-social behaviour and that mm. you know so yeah uh, and there's more to it than uh, pay uh, the conditions are part of uh, the reason why morale is so low and you've a lot of complaints uh, about your workplace as such yeah I think 
the issue seems to be burnout and the pressure that is on uh, units, particularly frontline response units in towns like Navan and Rotterdam and Dog there, where, you know, people who are just going literally from call to call to call, the, the investigative burden is massive on them. The administration and the, the follow-up, we hear of guards taking files home, coming in and they up just to stay on top of the paperwork. And it, it's just unrelenting. And as a, we seem to see people seem to suffer from burnout and they're just saying, no, I just can't, can't, can't keep going like this and people are looking for other options. OK, and would you say you have the tools to do the job? No, we wouldn't. We would say, you know, this is something we've been talking about for years there. Everything in regards to equipment and technology is way behind where it should be in regards. We just have to compare ourselves to neighbouring jurisdictions like the PSNI or the police in Scotland or in the UK where, you know, stuff that they just take for granted, body cameras, car cameras, you know, availability of tasers, and, you know, all the just, you just turn on any of those TV shows in the UK or anywhere across the world and you'll see the equipment that's available, even just the, the footage from patrol cars, mm. you get into the guard of car and there it is, there's a radio and that's it. Like. Mm. I think I heard you saying uh, that you could have turned the telly on 30 years ago uh, and seen equipment that Gardaí don't have today. Yeah, well, I think that, and that's well established by the police. That's not just the, the GRA, you know, scaremongering. Cathy Nutter, who was the first uh, chair of the guard inspector, she, when she took up, and that's probably going back 10 or 15 years, that 30 years previous to that, she had a computer terminal in her patrol car in the US. Mm. And still today, I mean, uh, a lot of guards out there today don't even have a mobile phone, which is, people might find that hard to believe, but, you know, the, the, the state doesn't even supply a phone, sat-nav, any of the basic tools that even other comparable emergency services now and have you get into an ambulance today you'll see they have a touch screen there they can see the call to go into the details they can give the rat scene time get more information and guards are just we're standing there i say i've 25 years done okay the, the torch is a bit better but that's about it nothing okay. has changed uh, you talk about tasers I, I think there's a lot of pride in how on guard is a non-armed force would that not be in effect arming the force you know, that's that's debatable as a concept, and, and certainly we, we do see merit in that, but, you know, a taser is a non-lethal force, and it, it, we believe that there's a deterrent effect. In other jurisdictions like the UK, a lot of the times it's actually not necessary to use it, just its presence. When 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 someone, they say what's called, when the red dot, when they take it out and put a red dot on someone and realise that something is going to happen, it's a de-escalation situation. And yes, we pride ourselves in unarmed, we want to stay unarmed, but maybe actually using something like a taser would actually help us stay on arm because it's kind of a, a stepping stone between. But also, I mean, mm. the guards can carry tasers discreetly. They can be locked away in cars. They don't have to be in your face or have to be visible to the public. But certainly the, with the rising number of attacks, I remember something has to be done to offer better protection to them. Are, are they non-lethal weapons or are they less lethal weapons. Uh, I, I was reading a, an argument saying uh, that you couldn't call them non-lethal, that you would have to describe them as less lethal because they can people. People can die of heart attacks, for example. Yes, look, sorry, that's probably technically in your right. Mm. It, no, no piece of equipment that incapacitates or causes injury is going to be completely risk-free. But off, And unfortunately, there has been a number of um, fatalities across the world. But there are, tasers are deployed thousands of times in different jurisdictions without incident. So, yes, there are risks involved, but that's where you have uh, proper training and proper protocols mm. for the use that would hopefully alleviate or, or reduce the, the chance of that happening. All right. Uh, talk to me about training, uh, because blue light training uh, is an issue for you, and it's one you've been highlighting because of uh, an incident that happened with one of your members in Limerick. 
Yeah, that 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 is pretty seems seems to have brought the thing into focus. But we have the the, the ludicrous situation where we have emergency uh, service personnel tasked with being the state's first response to citizens who are in danger, and we cannot use equipment on cars because of the lack of training. And guards who are not properly trained have to sign an undertaking that they will not activate the blue light. So we think that that situation is highly undesirable, and in some cases is bordering on farce. So um, I suppose it was the elephant in the room. There was probably people, we have to be honest, there was probably guards that were going outside that and using their blue light when they shouldn't have. And again, that's the culture of the guards. Our members make bad systems work, but now uh, members are facing discipline and a stronger sanction for going outside those protocols. So certainly that's going to... Mm. focus their minds and we believe reduce response times because the guards mm. I say it's not worth it why would they put their job at risk or risk of fine but for doing the right thing mm. morally but just explain to me what happened in Limerick because the guard in question believed uh, that members of the public were uh, at risk because he, he saw a stolen car fly by him and he put his lights on to warn people of uh, the danger was that not the situation? Well, that's what I understand. We generally shouldn't be talking about individual cases, but that is, I understand, the circumstances. And that that scenario arrives time and time again. You could have a guard on patrol with a drunk driver in charge in front of him who's driving all across the road. Activating blue lights will draw other motors' attention that there's some sort of hazard or something. And if, if they do that, they're actually in breach of discipline. So there's a contradiction there, as we say, because, you know, the guards take a note to protect life and property. And their fundamental role is to save lives and protect lives. And we believe that if a guard takes proportionate action that's reasonable and doesn't have anything that helps save someone, that should override some internal unworkable protocol. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we get into the conversation about ethics. Is it ethical to sit there and take no action and, and observe the public being put in danger? Or is it to breach an internal protocol, but on the, on the bigger picture, try to keep people safe and protect lives? We think in that scenario protecting people and keeping people safe is more important. But that's of cold comfort to a guard mm. is to go through a disciplinary process to have that decision making analysed and examined you know. It's become a very dangerous job and people will remember a very serious incident in Cavan in March where a guard had petrol doused on him and there's been questions about Gardaí working on their own and if they should have support. I think I'm right in saying that you quite often work on your own in rural areas, is that right? Yeah, that's quite common practice across the country, and, and so it goes back to your early comments about our tradition uh, of being mm. an unarmed police force out there in the community. And I suppose what's changing is that the policing environment has also has changed. But what what what's bringing it into focus is guards were probably okay. We were always a bit careful when we walked in the room, but at least when you knew there was somebody maybe ten minutes away that would come to your aid, that it gave you that comfort. But there's so few guards working there, and guards are covering such massive geographical areas that. Being on your own with no help and no support certainly is not is not acceptable or ideal. Does and while we would not we're not saying particularly that there's a complete moratorium that no guard can work alone, but other workers do work alone, and uh, organisations and companies and cities that have loan worker policies. We just believe more could be done. That you know, if our employer wants to do that, and we're willing to, there should be safety checks in place and protocols and equipment that minimises the risk or mitigates the risk. We can't el- eliminate all risk. Policing is a dangerous mm. job, but certainly there are 
there are better ways of doing uh, doing things. Okay, maybe we could conclude uh, by asking you uh, to uh, deliver a, a message to your employer, because I'm speaking to, to you this morning, Brendan O'Connor, as the vice president of uh, the GRA. You're uh, about uh, to be elected president of uh, the Garda Representative uh, Association, uh, and I'm sure, like every other minister in uh, the country, when they meet uh, members of uh, the public service in the coming weeks, uh, they're going to be asked about pay because of uh, the rising rate in the cost of living and uh, indeed inflation which is around 7-8% uh, could pan out at 6% but God knows what that will be. Uh, what will you be saying to uh, the Minister uh, when she comes to Westport? What we'll be saying to the Minister what other public services said and indeed other private workers said that you know the cost of living increases are hitting every family every worker and those who aren't working and our members are no different the only difference maybe we would say is we actually, because we're prohibited from serving close to our, our, our homes because of, of obvious reasons and protocols, that we are under probably a little bit more pressure because people have longer commutes. But like every worker was saying, there's something has to be done. And the fairness that hasn't acknowledged, so we'll be saying, you know, let's get into the process, let's talk about the issues and let's find some solution to alleviate the pressure on our members and have a more realistic um, uh, approach to pay and, and remuneration. Okay, Brendan, thank you for talking to us and best wishes uh, to you in your new role as President of uh, the GRA. Thank you very much. Okay, Michael, bye-bye. Okay, that's Brendan O'Connor, outgoing Vice President, incoming President of uh, the Garda Representative uh, Association, speaking to us from uh, Westport. Thanks uh, to Paddy, who was on the phone to us. Uh, We've been talking uh, about some of the wealthiest people in the world this morning and, indeed, the Oxfam report on all of uh, that wealth. Paddy... uh, has an interesting angle on this. He says, when you go into a supermarket and you buy something for five ninety nine, you don't get the one cent back from six euro. If a hundred items are, are bought in an hour, that's one euro. And when a thousand items are bought in a, a day, that's ten euros. In small amounts, you and I are losing money, especially now when every euro counts. This hasn't been challenged. And guess who gets that money? It's not you or me, uh, Paddy says. Uh, so where does it go? Uh, it's a, an interesting uh, comment, Paddy. Thanks uh, for getting in touch with us. Uh, I mean, I, if you think back years ago to pounds, shillings and pence, I thought the idea of things being nine ninety nine was that you waited for the penny back. Uh, but if you don't get the penny back, uh, well, uh, there's something different there. Um, Mary and Trim was asking, why uh, were we highlighting work? <coughs> excuse me, workers on strike, making them out to be the bad ones uh, this morning? Uh, Well, the workers on strike, uh, that is namely the MLSA, the medical scientists, uh, are uh, happy to come on and talk uh, about uh, the problems that they have uh, and the issues that they have so that they can explain it to people who are having appointments cancelled and so on, Mary. And uh, I think uh, uh, that was the reason that they wanted to do that, uh, because uh, there's a lot of disruption as a result of that strike today, which is always the case. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us saying... uh, uh, and on that subject saying uh, Michael two doing the same work one gets 8% more than the other it's unacceptable and it ought to be resolved 
immediately. Uh, thanks uh, for that. On a separate note, the same caller says that when they heard that the Gardaí were looking for more money, they thought it, it was some sort of joke. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm not sure why that would be the case. I think everybody's looking for more money. We'll be talking about that in a few minutes' time, given how the price of everything is just going in one direction. Tom and Kells in touch with us, uh, saying, uh, "Why was uh, there not a, a qualified guard in the car uh, with uh, that uh, guard who wanted to turn on the blue lights uh, to?" protect people. I, I think that's probably one of the issues that the GRA have, uh, Tom. Thank you indeed uh, for your text to the programme. If you have been in touch with us today, good to hear from you. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you heard, Gardaí will be looking for significant pay increases uh, and uh, they won't uh, be on their own. Who won't be, given uh, the rise of the cost of living and where inflation pans out seems next to impossible to predict. Let's uh, talk uh, to Louise O'Reilly, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on enterprise, trade and employment. Uh, very good morning to you, Louise. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. It's understandable everybody wants uh, an increase in their pay in order to stand still and continue to afford what they were able to afford uh, on what they were earning before their pay increases. Uh, but uh, there's a, a bit of a, a balancing act for us all to take into account, is there not? Well, there always has to be balance when it comes to any pay claim. But I think, you know, we also need to recognise that during the pandemic, there were many, many companies that, that absolutely suffered and, and, and some that, that didn't make it through the pandemic. But there were a lot of companies that did very well, um, you know, and there were an awful lot of companies who are doing well now because they were supported by the state during the pandemic. So they, they would have had, you know, a lot of transfer money to, to them and, and short term uh, oh, sorry, low interest rate loans, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the, there is there has to be a balance struck. But, like, there's no employer, not the government as the, as the employer of civil and public servants, nor any private sector employer who can doubt that workers need a pay rise. I mean, mm. at this point in the proceedings, I, I know this is not very scientific, Michael, just, mm, but if you mm, forgive me mm, for a minute, mm. I was in the shops at the weekend and I was speaking to the, the woman on the uh, on the de- on the, the cash out, the checkout, and she was saying to me, for the first time the last couple of months in uh, a long number of years now, you see people putting their food onto the belt and they're putting the essentials first, then they kind of can do without them and then the luxuries and they're checking the price as it's going through. So people are making very hard choices with their shopping they're having to make very hard choices with their uh, with their bills and trying to, to juggle that and inflation as we see is going up um, so it's not surprising that workers are going to look for pay rises uh, mm. and it's not surprising that they're going to be looking for uh, to enter into negotiations with their employers uh, in the next couple of weeks to ensure that they try to insulate themselves against the uh, the rise in inflation I mean even a conservative estimate will tell you that inflation the last year up to April is running at 7%. So mm. if you get anything less, you could say anything less than a 7% pay rise is, pay uh, is not going to keep, yeah, it's just yeah, not going to yeah. keep pace with inflation. Now, I mean, that you know, we do live in, uh, in a society where there are things that are very expensive for us that aren't so expensive in other countries, childcare and rent mm. being two of the biggest examples. You know, yeah. we pay a huge amount for childcare. That's 
crippling, uh, you know, uh, young families. And again, rent, our rents are among the, the highest yeah. in Europe. So I suppose a combination of measures and, that's a, 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 and, that, and pay increases are, are what workers need to get themselves out of this. That, 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 that kind of thinking may make the argument uh, for returning to some sort of form of social partnership because there is a, a problem with increasing pay. Uh, if you get that 7% pay increase, uh, it could mean that the essentials at the top of uh, the supermarket uh, will uh, go up by 7%, but uh, the luxuries could go up by 20%. Uh, so you're at a, a loss all the same. Uh, and there are other things that you can do uh, in terms of putting more disposable income into people's pockets. Absolutely. And I mean, we have been calling for, for years, as you know, and we've spoken about it, I think, on a number of occasions for measures to control the cost of rents. I mean, rents in, in, in Fingal, where I represent, have increased by 15% in the last year. I mean, come on now, whose wages are keeping pace with that level of increase? Mm. Nobody's. Yeah. You know, not not the not the the, the wealthiest uh, and you know the the most skillful negotiators uh, among workers are keeping pace with fifteen percent. Mm. But your rent is going up by fifteen percent. Now the government can do st- something about that. They can also curb the cost of childcare. So there's a number of measures that can be taken by the government. They could have curbed the cost of home heating oil as well, as we know, but they chose not to do that. But there's a number of things that the government can do. And then also workers will negotiate at local level. And I would say, you know, to anyone listening, if you're not a member of the trade union, I would encourage you to join your trade union and get active. We can see uh, as evidence in some of the banks and uh, some of the other bigger companies, GlaxoSmithKline, I think is one of them. We can see that the unions are negotiating pay rises for their members and that's done in an ordered way, in a structured way and also it's uh, it's usually done over a number of years so you can predict, mm. the workers can see what's going to be coming down the line and they can see that their pay increases are coming and that gives you that bit of certainty and that bit of stability that you mightn't get in a workplace where uh, where there's no union. So, you know, and if there's a union in your workplace, I'd be encouraging people to call mm. meetings, get involved and if there's not, I mean, consider reaching out to your local branch and that you get your union established because that's your voice at work. I mean, when we talk about social partnership, we talk about the unions and employers engaging at a high level, but actually what really delivers for workers is the unions and, and management and employers engaging at local level as well. That, that There has to be layers of it. I think in the past, when we had social partnership, we sort of hollowed out that, that local level bargaining. Mm, but mm. if there's to be high level talks, they have to be matched with talks at the level of the workplace. Where, the trade unions you know, got lazy. union will deliver. Because well, well, they did because they well, they did because they started making national. But I know that, yes, I know that, and I know, I know that, I know, I know, I know that it'll rile you, but it's there's some truth in it because they were making agreements at a national level and forgetting about local negotiations. And when you spoke earlier on about some companies doing very well, that's where local negotiations, negotiations at a local level, will come in to play and be successful but there are lots of companies uh, who just will be facing the same kind of demands that we're all facing in our daily lives their electricity bills are going up their fuel bills are going up and so on uh, and uh, the more wages increase uh, well then uh, the harder it is for them to do business and we could negotiate ourselves out of a, a job uh, there's a, another I don't think workers would do that now I'll just pick you up on that I, I mean I was a long time in the trade union movement and I accept your point about uh, that yeah. that 
I don't accept that it made the unions lazy, but it did create that bit of distance because you don't have that, that power to bargain at local level if mm. everything is done at national level and, and, and that creates an issue. And I think that the unions are overcoming that now, to be fair. But I do think, uh, you know, there is a strong case to be made for some form of, uh, you know, national body. The, they have the, the Labour um, and Economic Forum at the moment. I think that they could get into more detailed discussion and be issuing advice to people. But there isn't a worker in the world that is going to want to uh, to put themselves out of a job. You know, I mean, mm. that's why your, your local level negotiations are important. And it's important also that employers use the mechanisms that are there. Like if a pay claim is served and you can't you can't meet that pay claim, but you can go to the Labour Court, you can open up your books and you can prove that you can't mm-hmm. and the unions will say, OK, we'll come back at a later date when there's profitability or you might enter into a negotiation about, about productivity to improve that profitability. So there's a range of things that can be done. But I think well, we can all agree doing nothing is not an option because we, we simply can't have people, you know, getting yeah. further and further behind with their bills and, you know, having to make those horrible choices in the supermarket every day. Well, I mean, there is the other uh, issue of negotiating negotiating yourself out of a a job with multinationals, for example, who might find it cheaper to employ people elsewhere because our pay increases by 10 or 20% or or whatever it is. Uh, I I mean, there's so many factors to take into account. But as you say, uh, you may not need as much of an increase if childcare is made uh, cheaper, uh, housing is made cheaper, and so on and so forth. But what about tax. I mean, if I get a a 10% pay increase by pay increases by 10% and that makes 10% uh, extra taxable. Uh, Is is there somewhere in between um, that I'd get less of a pay increase and pay less tax that would work better? I'm not certain about that, to be honest, and I, that's not within the gift of, of unions to do at local level either, because obviously tax is decided by government. But I think, you know, we can look at things like a solidarity tax on very high earners. I think that's something that we do need to look at. Um, we need to look at how, you know, like in my experience, people don't mind paying tax, but what they want to know is what am I getting back for it? So people need to look at when they pay tax and they pay PRSI, what's the level of social transfer that they get at the end of that? So, you know, we still have to pay for GP care, we still have to pay for, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people have to buy private health insurance because they're, they're concerned about being able to meet their health costs. So there's a range of things that the government can do. And certainly if they were looking at progressive taxation, they'd be looking at shifting the burden off low-income workers and, and onto those who can sustain it more because we know, uh, you know, that we have a very high rate of uh, of low pay in this in this country. So 370,000 workers are ca- classified as being low paid. That's why we, when we look at progressive tax measures, we look at people who can sustain uh, an increase in tax a little bit more than others. And certainly workers on low pay can't. And actually in the next couple of weeks, I'll have a piece of legislation in the Dáil which is looking at ensuring that the Low Pay Commission, I've never liked that name, the Low Pay Commission, would become the Living Wage Commission and make you know recommendations to government in relation to the living wage. That's one way that we can future-proof uh, work and, and ensure that people can actually live and also make, uh, you know, make plans. Because if you're on low pay or precarious work, it's really hard to make plans because you don't know from one end of the week to the next what it is that's going to be mm. coming in. Whereas if you have the guarantee of the living wage, I think that's something that, uh, that certainly should be looked at. I know the government have committed to examining it, but they haven't really moved it on in the last two years. So we'll be looking to 
step up that conversation and actually put it on a legal footing in the next couple of weeks, which I think is important as well. Okay, and what about hours, guaranteed hours? Because I was talking to Mandate last week, a trade union that represents workers in retail and hospitality and so on, generally low-paid workers. uh, But they say that the issue is the rate of pay, but a bigger issue is uh, short hours, uh, that people aren't getting enough hours. So it doesn't really matter whether you're earning 10.50 or uh, 12.90 or whatever the living wages uh, it, it makes no difference if you're not getting the hours you still have very little to take home at the end of the week Absolutely and no security as well which is the other thing so you might get 15 hours this week which means that's ground I know in my, in my pay pack and I'm going to get 15 hours but you, you don't know what you're getting next week I mean you know your employer is demanding flexibility of you that your landlord's not going to give you know your employer is saying well I give you 15 this week 10 the next and maybe 30 the week after but you can't go to your landlord and say well look I've half the rent this week I might have um, I might have one and a half weeks next week, and I, and I might only have three quarters of a week next. Like your landlord is not extending that flexibility, and employers shouldn't be saying flex. They're calling this flexibility when, in actual fact, it's just putting workers into uh, an, an awful situation. I mean, precarious contracts absolutely destroy lives. You can't settle down. You can't make plans. You can't know from one week to the next time what you're going to be earning. So definitely, I know the government did introduce banded hours legislation. It was quite weak legislation. They watered down a lot of what uh, Sinn Féin had been looking for. And, uh, you know, I would be hoping that if we get a chance, we'd be able to strengthen that to ensure that workers can have a guaranteed floor in relation to their hours. But again, in the absence of a government willing to legislate in favour of workers, I would say to to anyone listening to this, if you're a member of of a union, get active and if you're not join a union and get mm. that at the level of uh, at, at local level where you can bargain in terms of ensuring that there's a floor and the, there's no worker in the state that doesn't know that an employer is going to need in some industries a certain amount of flexibility but what you want is to be able to have that guaranteed minimum number of hours so that you can say with certainty that you're not going to fall below a certain level mm. and ensure that you, you know because that's well, the only way you can plan well, really. There's a, there's a difference in the level and the percentage increase and I think when percentage increases are the focus it can fail low paid workers uh, most of all because 100% of nothing is 100% or is nothing about 100% of nothing is nothing or to put that another way if you're on 20,000 and you get a 100% increase you, you go up to 40% if you're on 100,000 you suddenly go to 200,000 mm-hmm. uh, so the difference between those who are getting a percentage increase on high pay uh, is remarkable uh, in comparison to those who are on low pay Absolutely and I mean that's why uh, you know you need your targeted measures to ensure that when there is a, a, an increase that that increase is felt in a real way by people on uh, low incomes. So when there is a decrease, it's felt most acutely by people on low incomes and things like high cost of rent and high cost of childcare, that represents a bigger portion of your income if you are uh, a low income worker. So, you know, we know that we have a crisis in terms of low pay. We know that that can be addressed by, number one, the government ensuring they do what they can to control the costs. And we know they can't do everything, but they can do more and they should be doing more. And then on the other side, at the local level, uh, bargaining for pay increases uh, and ensuring that that you you, you you try and make both meet because you know it, it's not true to say that you uh, that it's possible for workers to insulate themselves fully just with pay increases. The government has to be stepping up to the plate to control the cost of living in any way that they can to pull every lever that they have. I mean, there's not there's a good reason why people are saying there's a cost of living crisis at the moment. It's because we can see it. 
uh, everywhere we go. It's very, very evident. It's very apparent. And I think, you know, it's past time for the government to be taking action on it in terms of what they can do and then at the level of the workplace in terms of what workers individually and collectively can do uh, to, to ensure that they get those pay increases that they that they need. OK, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Thanks. That's Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on enterprise, trade and employment. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda you're investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Uh, Garda Kate Patterson, the Community Engagement uh, from the Community Engagement Unit in Dundalk joins us uh, for this week's report and we're going to begin in Dundalk with uh, a serious assault that occurred in the town over the weekend. Good morning, Michael. That's right. So um, I suppose Guardian and the Community Engagement Unit are investigating a serious assault on a male which took place in the afternoon of Saturday the 21st of May. So Saturday just passed. Um, it took place in the Ahamine Park area of Mahevnamore at about 5pm. A lot of people were present in the area at the time as there was a large homecoming event taking place just across the road in the Glenmore Park area. Um, the victim of the assault was taken by ambulance to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda with a suspected head injury. The victim is now stable and recovering. I suppose if you witnessed this incident, which took place just off Howie's Lane, Gardy and Dundalk would really like to speak to you. Um, the attack took place in broad daylight on a busy Saturday afternoon in a built-up residential area. Now, this area is very close to the neighbourhood shopping centre in the Heavenmore and the Holy Family Church. You might have captured it on mobile phone or you might have captured it on your dash cam. If so, you could really assist our investigation. Um, you could give us a call in Dundalk on 042 Nine three eight eight four zero zero, or indeed on the Garda Confidential Line eighteen hundred six 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 one one one. And we stay in Dundalk, uh, where there was an aggravated burglary a week earlier. That's correct, Michael. And two males are actually due to appear before Kells District Court this morning, having been charged in connection with it. This aggravated burglary took place late in the evening of Saturday the 15th of May at 11pm in the Bachelor's Walk area of Dundalk. So two males forced their way into a house where a single female was present. One male was armed with a knife and the second with a baton. Um, the female was struck over the head with the baton and this caused her to lose consciousness. Uh, the males then made off with approximately €3,000 in cash on the victim's mobile phone. She was taken to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and was treated for her injuries. Um, and as we mentioned earlier this week, two males were arrested. They were questioned by Gardaí investigating the matter and they have been charged and are due to appear before Trim District Court this morning. OK, next uh, to a burglary that uh, occurred in Old Castle uh, on Friday of last week. Yeah, so the Guardian Kales are investigating this burglary. It took place at approximately 2am, so the early hours of Friday, May the 20th, at a premises in Oldcastle. Now, a silver Mitsubishi Pajero Jeep was stolen during the course of the burglary. I'm going to share a partial registration of that vehicle. So the, the registration begins with SV10. That's Sierra Victor 10, a Sylvie Mitsubishi Pajero Anybody driving in the area at the time is asked to check their dash cam footage and anybody who may have noticed any suspicious activity or this stolen vehicle is asked to please contact Kells Garda Station. The number at Kells is 046-9280820. Okay, and more burglaries that occurred last Friday in Laytown this time though. 
Yes, so two burglaries. Now, these occurred in neighbouring houses in the Fairways Lawns area of Bettystown, as you said, on Friday the 20th of May in the afternoon, um, between the times of 3.30pm and 3.50pm. So you might be able to to assist the investigation if you were in the area at the time and you noticed any suspicious persons or suspicious vehicles, we would ask that you please contact Laytown. The number in Laytown is 041 9813320 or indeed you can contact Ashburn Garda Station and the number for Ashburn is 018010600. Okay, we hear every week uh, about a lot of burglaries and you've uh, some advice on vacant homes for us. We do, Michael, and I suppose as we approach the summer months, um, many of your listeners may be travelling abroad for the first time in a number of years, and we would just like to remind them and indeed provide them with some crime prevention advice, sorry, if their homes are going to be vacant. So firstly, we would say, ask a trusted neighbour or a family member to conduct frequent checks on your property at different times of the day. They might notice any signs of trespass or interference, and we would ask you to tell them to note them. Um, Secondly, I suppose, very straightforward, ensure the house alarm is set. And if you don't have a house alarm, you know, maybe consider getting one. Um, You could check all your windows and doors are secured and use a deadlock bolt if your house is going to be vacant for long periods. A lot of windows these days can be locked as well. But what we would say is if you lock the windows, make sure that when you return home, um, you remember to open them because obviously they're a point of emergency exit in the case of a fire or whatever. Um, then timers, timers on your internal lights and motion sensors on external lights. These always make your house appear to be occupied and I suppose offer some type of natural surveillance. Um, Then nextly we would say, you know, try and ensure that your building doesn't look neglected because nothing screams more than a vacant house than a neglected house. Mm. So we would advise you maybe to cut the grass, trim the hedges and always have somebody to bring in the bins, bring them in and out. Mm. You Uh, you may uh, be away. Uh, and the post, uh, indeed, I know that you can inform your local Garda station as well and they'll keep a, a, an eye out. I have to leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme with thanks to Garda Kate, Patter- Kate Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station. That's our programme for today, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.